Welcome to episode 36 of Mike's Notes. Today, one of my favorite recent ideas, pattern recognition. Before we talk about pattern recognition for this episode of the podcast, let me tell you a quick story about one of my early cars. I remember getting this orange Chevrolet HHR. It kind of had the long flat body reminiscent of an older time, an older car design. And before we got this car, which we needed because we had just had um, a car accident and so we were replacing a vehicle. Before we got this car, I never noticed these cars anywhere. I never noticed the orange color anywhere. But as soon as we got this car, bam, immediately I started seeing this car style and car color everywhere. And hopefully this podcast serves that role for you in the same way that reading books and listening to podcasts serves that role to me. Hopefully we talk about ideas that once you articulate them, once you give them a name, you start to see them everywhere. And then if you start to see them everywhere, you can sort of rely on your own confirmation bias to figure out, is this something that's valuable to me that I can use in different parts of my life? Or is this something that, even though we've named it, isn't all that relevant? And I think once we get into pattern recognition today, you'll see that it's definitely the former. Pattern recognition is this idea that you can make more accurate and you can make faster decisions because you've seen this situation before. It's where you face some set of variables or circumstances or people or situations or contexts and rather than starting from zero, rather than guessing, you can rely on your past experiences to really help you out. On the blog, thewaiterspad.com that I write, I say that pattern recognition is a superpower because it saves you time, energy, and resources. It's like having an ability to move faster than other people do, like superheroes do in the comic books. Pattern recognition is especially valuable if you're in a situation where your relative results matter. So uh, choices during the course of a football game or in an industry where things are about to change. Andy Grove wrote about strategic inflection points in his business, and this is what he wrote about a company that's facing one of these points. Quote, The biggest danger facing an early mover company is that it may have a hard time distinguishing a signal from a noise and start to respond to an inflection point that isn't one. End quote. Grove's book, Only the Paranoid Survives, Survive, have a, has a heavy emphasis on acting early, on moving quickly through a strategic inflection point. That is, once you realize that things are about to change, you need to get through that change quickly. It matters if you're the first one out of there. And he says that part of the problem with these strategic inflection points is that people don't know what to do. That is, they don't have the right pattern recognition skills. The stories we'll look at today will hopefully contribute to your pattern recognition skills in the same way that years of driving a car have done or anything else that you engage in on a regular basis. If you've been driving a car a while, you understand what it's like to slam on the brakes on the road or slam on the brakes on an icy road or swerve or slow down for a red light. All of these things 
are uh, baked into your understanding about driving because you've seen them over and over and over again. You have the right pattern recognition skills to successfully drive a car. So let's get into a few of my favorite pattern recognition stories. The first is from Ted Weschler, and he's a portfolio manager for uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway Company. Weschler was interviewed by Business Insider, and they asked, as you have been a successful investor for years, is there a recipe to it? And this is Weschler's response. Quote, there is one, but I'm not telling you. Investing is kind of a game of connecting the dots. The nice thing about it is the longer you are in the business, as long as you are intellectually curious, your collection of data points of dots gets bigger and bigger. That is where someone like Warren is just incredible. He's had a passion for investing for well over 70 years. He started by the age of 10 or 12. He keeps building that library of data, the ability to recognize patterns in data. Being a successful investor, you need to be hungry, intellectually curious, interested, read all the time, read a lot of newspapers. You need a certain level of randomness in order to connect things that might give you an insight into where a business is going in five years that somebody else might not see, end quote. And we've heard Buffett say exactly this. This is a clip of uh, dubious audio quality, but it's a clip of Buffett explaining to Charlie Rose about his IBM investment. Yeah, Charlie, I've been reading IBM's annual report, literally, every year for 50 years. And then this year, I saw something that sort of clicked in terms of adding to my feeling of confidence, and uh, so we spent 10 plus billion. <laughs> 50 years. It really gives you an appreciation of the sort of pattern recognition that Buffett does and that Buffett has when he explains that he's been reading something for 50 years and then he decides to act on it. Notice what else Weschler says. He says that you have to take in information from a variety of sources. Buffett's partner, Charlie Munger, calls these mental models, these ideas where he uh, sees something that works in one domain and he transfers it to other domains. And Munger says that a handful of these models will carry most of the freight. That is, if you can get a few of these things right, you can apply it to different domains. If you can identify certain patterns, you can see how they fit. One example of this is the idea of incentives. Buffett and Munger are uh, big believers in individual incentives and how individuals are incentivized. And they use this understanding of the pattern, uh, incentives, and lay it over different areas. So uh, they talk about how FedEx changed the incentives for their employees and it affected how well they got packages out. They talked about the incentives for the Coca-Cola executives and how that made them have skin in the game and so they were more involved. They also talk about uh, microeconomic incentives. What does the individual person do? And they base a lot of their investments around that. So if you can identify these patterns from different areas, things that are true, uh, in many instances, then you can start to lay those things over. One of my favorite stories of pattern recognition comes from the book Blind Man's Bluff, the untold story of American submarine espionage. And this story takes place in 1970. We have Commander James Bradley is in charge of a submarine that um, is tasked with tapping a Soviet cable that is under the sea of Akhask. And while Bradley thinks this cable is under the sea, he's not sure. Uh, 
the sea is 600,000 square miles in size. And on one end, um, it sort of, the sea sort of looks like an upside down U, where the U is a land mass and the sea is the area in between. So on the right side of the U, uh, we have a submarine base. And on the left side, we have a Russian command post. And so Bradley thinks that there's a cable that connects one to the other. Uh, because it wouldn't be that efficient just to go around the shore. If you could go in a straight line underwater, it would be much better. So he has this submarine, and uh, he thinks if he takes it there, that he will be able to tap into the underwater cable. So he's got the halibut. It's uh, outfitted for tapping cables, but he doesn't know where it is. This is from the book. Quote, Bradley cleared his mind of charts and maps, freed himself from official assessments, from the meetings, memos, and briefings that swamped the business intelligence in Washington. He let his eyes close, and his thoughts wandered to simpler journeys taken in simpler times, before the Cold War, before World War II, back to the waters of his childhood. There he found an answer that was beguilingly simple and just strange enough to be true. It was buried in his memories of St. Louis in the 1930s when he was a boy and his mother packed him up to escape the summer's heat on riverboat rides along the Mississippi River. From the point where the Mississippi meets the Missouri River through Alton, Illinois, the, bo the boats steam through water dyed with brown silt and baked by miles of flood plains, plains painted with wild upstrokes, upward strokes of grasses until the green gave itself up abruptly to towering gray barrier bluffs. Eagles traced circles above while sand cranes left leggy tracks along the shore. It was this scenery that captured most people riding the river that and the riverboat orchestra and social scene on board. But for a boy, there were other sights that marked the trip. The young Bradley had taken to passing time with the steamer captains in the pilot house, and from there he could see a series of black and white signs placed discreetly along the shore. Most of the signs marked mileage and location. But there were a few he remembered now that declared, Cable crossing, do not anchor. These signs were there to keep some idiot in a boat from snaring and snapping a phone or utility cable in the shallows. Bradley's eyes snapped open as he realized that what was true of the Mississippi just might be true of Atosk. That's how they would find the cable, he thought. That's how they would engineer one of the most daring acts of telepiracy of the Cold War. Halibut would be led directly to her quarry by signs placed somewhere on a lonesome beach in the Soviet Union declaring, watch out, cable here, end quote. <laughs> So Bradley goes back to his childhood, to this uh, pattern recognition skill of if there are going to be boats traveling through a waterway where a cable is buried, there will be signs. Another example, this one from the world of football, comes from the Super Bowl that the Patriots played against the Seahawks in uh, February of 2015. This is the game that ended with an interception uh, by the Patriots um, and that sealed the victory against the Seahawks. But what's really interesting is the explanation and detail about that final play that's in the NFL movie, Do Your Job. That movie highlights how the Patriots had practiced that play. And specifically, it was designed by a man, the practice was designed by a man named Ernie Adams, who is uh, Bill Belichick's right-hand man. He's like the lead assistant He's the Belichick's Belichick, as how David Halberstam puts it in his book about Belichick. And um, they talk about how that play was designed. This is what Belichick says. 
Quote, Ernie would diagram plays that he thought they would run against us or that he had seen from previous games, end quote. So here we hear that Ernie Adams is a pattern recognizer. He watches a lot of NFL film uh, and news articles about Adams, though they are scarce and far and few between. Uh, it says he works 100 hours a week and that he has an encyclopedic memory of every football play he's seen. So here we get uh, the details about pattern recognition, about what it takes to develop good patterns. So Adams has designed the same basic play that the Seahawks run, how to defend this pass play when there's two receivers, one in front of the other. And uh, from the offensive point of view, they're trying to get one receiver to rub off a defensive cornerback so the other receiver is open. And in this video, in this NFL video, Do Your Job, they show this play being run at practice and they highlight it and they articulate that each of the New England cornerbacks uh, was instructed on the different roles. Each cornerback went through the different roles on this play. So when it came time uh, for this play to come up in the game, and it came up on the last play the Seahawks had, the New England defensive players were well-versed. They recognized uh, what was happening because they had seen it before. They had good pattern recognition skills. This is what Ernie says about identifying and building certain pattern recognition skills. Quote, you're going to win or lose games at practice. There's no such thing as being a game day player. You see situations come up on the practice field. You've worked on it. You know what it takes. When it comes up in the game because you're trained, you're seasoned, you've seen it, you react and make the play, end quote. Notice how um, many synonyms he has for pattern recognition in there. You've seen it. Uh, you're seasoned. Uh, situations you've worked on. You know what it takes. Adams uses his pattern recognition skills to design plays and practice to build his players' pattern recognition skills. He's very uh, humble in the video and points out that it doesn't always work, but he notes that they tried to practice anything that could come up on a Sunday. So they tried to build all of these little pattern recognition skills into uh, the players and what the players are able to do. Episode 33 of this podcast, we looked at uh, the book Failure to Launch, which talks about the NASA flight control deck and Gene Kranz's experiences there. Kranz was the uh, man who supervised the lunar landing of Apollo 11, and he was also involved in finding solutions for the Apollo 13 disaster. One thing that comes up again and again in that book is how many simulation situations NASA did. They actually had uh, what's called a simulation supervisor, somebody who would come up with situations to run against the flight uh, director and his team. This is so similar to the idea of practicing plays in the NFL or having war games for the military or studying history when it comes to investing. It's this conscious effort that you need to build up these skills of knowing what to do and really going through these if you're going to uh, figure out how to successfully solve these problems. One that uh, Kranz points out in his book is that during the Apollo 11 simulations, they didn't end on a high note. Typically, uh, in the final few days of simulations, this is when the astronauts have gone to Florida, they've left Houston where they've done a lot of training. Uh, the simulation supervisor will throw some softballs to the flight crew to get them uh, with a positive attitude, get them believing in themselves. 
Crayon says that his simulator for the uh, Apollo 11 mission was just ruthless. He said he just kept throwing hard situation and hard situation at him over and over again. And one of the final simulations on the last day was an air code 1202. And Crayon's had never seen it before. Uh, they couldn't figure out what exactly to do. And uh, in, at NASA, the procedures were that you had certain windows of time. And you had to make a decision within a window. If you couldn't come to a uh, answer, if you couldn't find an answer, if you couldn't come up with a solution, then you had to abort the mission. And Kranz's crew couldn't figure out what a 1202 was, and so they aborted. During the debriefing after the simulations, the simulation supervisor walked him through what a 1202 was and explained to him that they didn't need to abort. It was just a situation where the computer was warning them that it may have to reset if it got uh, too much information. That exact error code came up during the Apollo 11 lunar descent. The actual thing they had practiced, this obscure error code that wouldn't normally be done if they had been given a softball day it was something that came up and that was important to the success of the lunar landing. Kranz writes in his book that when he was a pilot, he always tried to uh, not get behind the plane, to fly ahead of the plane, to be ahead of the power curve. And that's what good pattern recognition skills are. It's being able to act or react very quickly in different situations. So, if pattern recognition is a superpower, if it's such a great thing, what do you do about it? How can you create better pattern recognition skills? Well, there's, um, there's three ideas that I came up with. Number one, you start with the base rate. The base rate is what typically happens in that situation. So, if you are going to buy a house and you're going to put no money down, how often do no money down houses end up in foreclosure? How often do those kinds of people have trouble making payments? Starting with the base rate is really good because typically humans, you and I, have trouble coming up with objective observations. A book that I'm reading right now called Kluge, which is an explanation about how our brains are sort of constructed, not optimally, but good enough, uh, explains that we are susceptible to things because of the way our brain is organized. And one way we are susceptible to things is this idea of priming. We can be nudged in a certain direction. We can uh, think of things as heavier or lighter based on something else that is coming. Typically, academic studies like this go something like, take the last four digits of your phone number, subtract 200, and then estimate the gross domestic product of Mexico in millions of dollars. And what tends to happen in these studies is if your phone number minus a few hundred is a low number, so let's say it's a hundred, you will have a lower uh, estimate for the Mexican GDP compared to someone who has a high answer to the phone number question. This kind of priming we can use to our advantage when we start with the base rates. That is, we start with what typically happens here. So we will prime ourselves with what typically happens, and then we can make our own guess. We can say, okay, this is what I think will happen. And then we can say, how much control do I have over moving it from the base rate to what I think is going to happen? 
We talked in a previous episode about soccer, that economists think soccer is about a 50-50 game. There is a lot of luck involved on the soccer field. And so thinking that you can take a soccer team that has 10 wins, 9 wins, and 8 wins in successive seasons and have them have 20 wins in the next season is a little bit of bias on your part because the base rate is around 9 or 10. And the ability to uh, double the wins from that is going to be really subject to luck. Another way that we can accelerate our pattern recognition skills is just to hire someone else to do it, to hire someone with more experience. And we do this all the time. We have financial advisors who have seen things before, who have recognized patterns and can help us out. Uh, Companies have boards of directors that are people experienced in other industries that have pattern recognition skills. Uh, we, anytime we talk to someone that is older than us and we seek them out in part because of their age and their wisdom, we are relying on other people's pattern recognition skills. So we can kind of hire it out. And the third way is one of my favorite ways, and that is to read. All of the stories today came from different books that I've read, and it's in different books that I pattern recognize pattern recognition. It's this big idea that can be applied to different areas, but it only came because I was reading, because I was exploring, because I was, in Ted Weschler's words, intellectually curious. So if we can build up these sort of pattern recognition skills, it will be a superpower. It'll have us uh, invest less time and less resources and less energy and less money and get us to the better answers quicker, especially when we're in a situation where we need to arrive at those better answers before other people. Thanks for listening to episode 36 of Mike's Notes. Make like a tree and get out of here. It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave and take your book with you.